Welcome to Religiously Literate. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jay. Join us as we explore the diversity of religious belief around the world. What's the largest religion in India? Where does yoga come from? Stay tuned as we answer these questions and learn a little bit along the way. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Hinduism, which is supposedly the world's oldest religion. Uh, But before we get to that, first, we're going to answer a question. Someone wrote us. How about that? So we got a question on our Facebook page uh, from Molly, which she said, Hey, guys, just finally had a chance to listen today. I wanted to ask if there is a significance to the number five. I noticed five Ks, five stanzas recited with a new child and and in the nation. Uh, and in the initiation process, uh, drinking sweet water five times, and it's poured on your head five times. I might have missed something, so let me know. So my initial response to this was that there is probably a holdover from Hinduism. Five is a auspicious number in Hinduism, so my initial guess was that uh, Guru Nanak was originally Hindu, aware of some traditions, definitely auspiciousness, which we'll talk about a little later in the episode. So likely that was probably why it was important. But you did some more research because you're a better researcher than I am. So what did you find? (laughs) I Googled. First of all, thanks, Molly, for listening. Molly's a friend of mine from a long time ago. So that's cool. Um, From high school, actually. Um, But anyway, so I did a little bit of extra Googling because I don't know anything about anything going on in Asia most of the time. Um, so Google is my friend and I was able to, I took Jay's suggestion that there is probably some sort of holdover for Hinduism going on there. And I was able to find that in Hinduism, which this is a nice, uh, sort of segue into what we're going to talk about this week or this episode, um, is the five elements that everything in the universe is made out of. Um, and they're called the Panch Mahabhuta, which my pronunciations are horrible. Um, but these are ether or space, air, fire, water, and earth. Um, and if you've heard, ever heard about Ayurvedic medicine, which is a traditional healing method in India, um, these elements are very important to those healing traditions and to a lot of Indians in general, because um, it's kind of a, undergirds a lot of things in Indian cultures. Cool. So that's kind of probably why five is important and everything comes in fives in the Sikh faith. So as Ryan mentioned, we're going to talk about Hinduism today. But before, I guess, as we get started into that, one thing that I want to say, particularly about the term Hindu or Hinduism, is that Hindu is an umbrella term for various practices. As we go through, you're going to find very quickly that there is no specific dogma. There's a lot of This is what some people may do, but we can't speak for all Hindus. It's very fluid. There's a lot of autonomy in terms of what you believe and how you practice. So just putting that out front. So it really is an umbrella for a bunch of traditions uh, that began in South Asia. And in some ways, it, it can be difficult to tell a Hindu from a Buddhist or a Sikh, minus the initial, um, like outerwear of a Sikh, but in terms of practice, sometimes it can be a little difficult. Uh, But the term itself is actually an external term that was used by Greeks and Persians to describe the people that are living in present-day India. And for the longest time, it was was an external term. So only people outside of modern-day India were using it. And then eventually the people themselves began to see it or to use it because they wanted to distinguish themselves from the Turks. So it's had a kind of an interesting history, and then it really took off when the British came 
And uh, initially they called India Hindustan and all these things. And so it became kind of prolific after that. But external term that has kind of been reclaimed by the people themselves. <clears throat> so uh, what did you find out about Hinduism in general? Um, in general, it is the third largest religion in the world um, that comes after Christianity and Islam. I think Islam is number one. Am I correct? Uh, I think it's rising to number one. Okay, it yes. will be what, number one. But I think That's right now is. Christianity still holds the number one spot. That's right. Um, India is the only Hindu majority country in the world. Um, I forget the actual number of Hindus in India, but it's a lot. There's a lot of people in India. Yeah, it's roughly 80%, so 1.2 billion people. Um, and I think that it is important to say that uh, so while 80% of the population in, in India is Hindu, a vast majority of Hindus live in South Asia. And I think it's important to distinguish what South Asia is, and this is based on the um, – United Nations. So it includes Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, the Maldives, which was a surprise to me, Nepal, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. And both Nepal and Bangladesh have the largest Hindu populations outside of India at one and two or two and one percent, respectively. So <laughs> It's incredibly small, but still, yeah. yes, a huge difference. Um, but yeah. I did not know that South Asia was that inclusive. I knew like a five of the countries, but like Maldives and Afghanistan kind of were a shock to me. Yeah, I would have said like India and maybe Nepal if you caught me on the right day. Oh, okay. <laughs> like I said, I know nothing about Asia. <laughs> oh, okay. You're going to learn a lot today. That's, yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, but yeah, like like you were saying before, um, it really Hinduism as a religion. We're going to kind of throw all of our listeners for a loop. Doesn't really exist in the way that maybe the Sikh faith does and Christianity does. You know, there is like Jay was saying. You know, there's this really lack of centralization and um, in practice and in belief to a certain extent too. There's a kind of a popular saying that Hinduism is more than religion. It's a way of life. And I think that that really embodies kind of the idea that's often said by a lot of Hindus um, because it really is a fluid mixture of art, culture, and religion. They all kind of encompass. We'll be talking more about religion, a little bit of culture. Um, there is an argument to be made at what point does culture and religion split. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think we'll be talking less about art today, but definitely that culture and, and quote-unquote religious uh, piece will be mentioned today. Yeah, that was something that I found in my research that not to like get us off on a tangent very early, but here we are. Um, sure. <laughs> something that I found that was interesting was when I was looking up things that I had associated with Hinduism, I was finding that they aren't necessarily always associated with Hinduism, that they're actually just more Indian in nature. Um mm. Culturally. So like yoga, for instance, which we'll talk about later, I read that a lot of stuff was like, well, you know, just because you're practicing yoga in India does not necessarily mean you're Hindu. Um, so correct. Something that I thought was interesting. Yeah. So should we get into a little bit of the history of uh, Hinduism? Sure. The history of Hinduism is going to be much more succinct than it was when we talked about six, um, because since it's so um, since it's so diffuse as a religious system, 
it's kind of hard to track it historically. Also, for a long period of time, it was transmitted orally. Um, and so a lot of the history is just like this text was written at this date or around this date. Um, but what we do know or what we can speculate is that Hinduism is likely the oldest religion, oldest practiced religion in the world. Um, the date for some of the earliest evidence we have of what we call Hinduism today is around 3000 BCE in the Indus River Valley civilization, which this is, to give you kind of a geographical idea, this would have been in the area of the border between Pakistan and India. And we'll put up some maps for you of South Asia so you get kind of an idea of where that's at. Um, but this is based on archaeological evidence from that region. And um, this in idea of this Indus River Valley civilization is a is a anthropological term for that people that was, you know, come up that was created by anthropologists. Um, there are some similarities that are used to say, okay, this is where we think Hinduism may have started, but there's no clear, like, there's no clear evidence that's like hard and fast that says, okay, this is obviously where Hinduism started. Yeah. I mean, so there's like, for instance, fire seemed to be very important among these people. Uh, fire is still important, particularly in rituals, uh, the most prevalent being weddings, which we'll talk about later. And then there were stamps that were found. And there is a stamp that looks very similar to later kind of depictions of Shiva, mostly being that there is like a huge phallus. But some people but you can have, say that for like all sorts of religions all over. Fair, but a lot of people are also like, is it a phallus? Is it maybe part of the garments that this figure is mm -hmm. wearing? Um, so similarities, but definitely it's very, like people are very apprehensive to say this is where Hinduism started. I think the closest association, because I love to make connections, um, would be the Judaism, if you want to call it that, but like the religion of the Israelites versus modern day Judaism. Like, drastically different, like very few similarities. That's kind of what we're looking at here. There are some things, again, like fire that continue to hold semblance, but like drastically different uh, things going on. Yeah, just to throw a wrench in the works there, Zoroastrianism um, historically has had a high importance for fire, and that was also another religion that was happening in that region around yeah, the same that's time. Fair. So, Yeah. But at the end of the day um, – like we said before, we privilege the opinions of the people who practice these religions themselves. And Hindus really view their religion as timeless. You know, it's not like Christians where Christians will trace it back to the birth, life, and death of Jesus um, as the start of the religion. Hindus believe that it's timeless and that this whole history thing isn't necessarily relevant. So do you want to talk about some beliefs now? Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about what people actually believe. Yeah. I think that this may be the most difficult part for people who are not Hindu uh, to understand, but we will try our best to make it simple. So I think that there, the first question I think a lot of people have are, is, or questions is, is Hinduism monotheistic or is it polytheistic? Which I think the we should probably define those terms for folks. Oh, yeah, fair. So, okay, so, so mono... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I'll do it. Go I ahead. got it. So monotheism is 
a religion that worships one single deity or godhead figure thing. I don't. I want to kind of stay away from gendered terms because supreme being. You know, yeah. There we go. Supreme being. Thank you. Um, and polytheistic religions believe in multiple supreme beings or deities. Um, so, like your stereotypical monotheisms are like Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Um, polytheisms. I guess what's a good polytheistic example? Oh, the Greeks and the Romans. If you look at like tradition, old Greek and Roman mythology, and um, I hate that word. I can't believe I just used it. Um, if you look at the- just Greek the ancient and Roman Greeks religion. and Romans. Yeah. 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 So that's monotheistic and polytheistic. So if you were to ask, is Hinduism monotheistic or polytheistic? The answer would be yes. <laughs> um, it's be, and like the like not to be facetious, it depends on the person that you're asking. So yeah. at the core of the beliefs, there is Brahman, who is the ultimate reality. And so Brahman exists, and within Brahman, there is one god, and there are many manifestations of God, but there are also many gods. So depending on who you ask, all the deities and manifestations are just represent- representations of one god, but someone else may say there's one god, there's many forms of god, but each of these gods are individual gods. So it just really depends. So yes is the answer. Um I remember taking classes in undergrad. And so I remember our professor would famously start every kind of Hindu class with, you know, how many gods are there in Hinduism? Because that's what everyone wants to know. And he would say, for every person who identifies as a Hindu, there are at least that many gods times 100. Because it really comes down to the individual person and what they believe Mm -hmm. and what they think. So there are plenty of gods. There are very popular gods that everyone is kind of familiar with, or many people are familiar with, I should say. There are gods that are very specific to your community, your family. We'll get into that in a second. But it's, yeah, so you can think of it as there's Brahman, but then there are manifestations of Brahman. So if that's monotheistic to you, then it's monotheistic. If that's polytheistic, that's polytheistic. It's just kind of whatever you want to believe, I guess is, is the kind of easy way of saying that. Brahman is... Similar to God in the Sikh faith, like we talked about on our last episode, in the sense that Brahman pervades everything. Brahman is in everything at all times. Um, And these other gods are these expressions or embodiments of Brahman. There's this sense that it can't be easily described, which like you're probably witnessing right now as you're listening, um, that we are having (laughs) problems with this. Um, And so it's rather, it's that it's more experienced through different sorts of practices like meditation, like different kinds of yogas. Yes, there are yogas and we're going to talk about them later. Um, And asceticism, which asceticism is like um, sort of removing yourself from society um, to for a, some sort of religious purpose. So like if you think about nuns and monks in the Catholic Church, they are ascetics in the purest sense of the word. Um, and you do those things to look inward to understand this true essence of Brahman. So like even Hindus wouldn't necessarily have an easy time explaining what Brahman is necessarily. Um, I will say, though, that like there are some important gods i don't know are you gonna i'll just talk about it now there are like yeah. some there are the key guides there's the the trinity which there is like a specific sanskrit word for it that i'm blanking on at the moment but there's the trinity 
so many people are familiar with the Trinity. Not everyone sees them as the most important, um, but they are Brahma, the creator, also known as, as, as Brahman. Um, not to be confused with Brahman that we'll talk about later, the cast. Um, <laughs> uh, so Brahman's the creator, Shiva is the destroyer, and Vishnu is the preserver. Um, and these are kind of the Trinity. But And I p- point these as kind of, in some ways, the three most important, because obviously Brahma, the ultimate reality. Um, Shiva and Vishnu also have separate kind of sex. So um, people who consider Vishnu to be the primary god um, or followers exclusively of Vishnu are called uh, Vaishnas. And then um, people who follow Shiva, oh, I just blanked on it. Um, uh It'll come back to me. But there's like a specific name for that group of people. So it can kind of there are not too many gods who have specific exclusive devotees, um, but these two are, are two of the, the popular ones. And then there are other gods. These are some of the more popular ones, like uh, Ganesha. This is the elephant-headed god. Uh, Krishna, who is a manifestation of Vishnu. He's um, a playful god. There's a festival we'll talk about in reference to Krishna. There's Pavarti slash Durga, two different gods, but two manifestations of, of one god. A Hanuman is the monkey god, and then a Lakshmi, who is Shiva's wife. And there are many, 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 many more gods I could talk about, um, but I'm not going to go into depth. One, because we could be here for hours, but two, at some point in the future, we will have an episode exclusively on Hindu gods, not on all of them, but on some popular <laughs> ones, and we'll talk about uh, their, all of them. <laughs> their, their stories and, um, like, for instance, how did Ganesha come up with the elephant head? So we'll talk about things like that. Um, so I'll just stop there. Cool. Um, so you mentioned, not to get off too much on a tangent, but you mentioned Sanskrit. So you can, tell, can you tell us what Sanskrit is? Yeah, so just like throwing <laughs> all the questions at me. So Sanskrit is um, an ancient language. It is the language that it's it's part of the um, Indo-European language family, but it's the basically it's the ancient language that is used for Vedic text. Sweet. Now I want to I want to kind of talk about the central goal of being a practicing Hindu. Okay. Basically. Um, and this kind of comes back to what we talked about in the last episode or what we kind of teased in the last episode, I guess. Now we're going to kind of get into it a little more in depth or give you like the context for where the ideas of like samsara and reincarnation come from. So, again, kind of like in <clears throat> the Sikh faith, like we talked about, the central goal is liberation or breaking from this cycle of death and rebirth called samsara. Um, and in Hinduism, they talk about how at death, um, our Atman or our eternal soul departs from our bodies and is reborn into a new body. So to kind of give you an idea of the logistics of how that works. Um, and samsara or your rebirth or where you're reborn into is regulated by karma, which we talked about last week or last episode about how this is the sort of accumulation of good and bad deeds throughout all of your lifetimes, including every previous rebirth. And then this governs your subsequent rebirths. I mean, I guess this is probably a good time for you to talk about the caste system. 
Yes. So the caste system um, actually comes from a couple places. Caste itself is is derived from a Portuguese word, but it is the P- Portuguese version of varna, which means colors. And this comes from a section of the Rig Veda, which is a sacred text in Hinduism. In in the this section, it's it, there is uh, basically it's talking about God and. It mentions four parts of the body, and from these four parts, different sects or groups of people come from. So, like, from the top of the head, I believe, are the Brahmins, who are the priests. Um, I think from the chest are the warriors, who are the Kshatriyas. From the thighs come the merchants, also known as Vaishas. And then from the feet come the servants, uh, which are Shudras. And so this is was supposed to be a hierarchy of societies there's a lot of debate about whether or not this was actually practiced in reality or if this was just something that title that was given to people like there's just a lot of debate about whether or not this happened regardless this did become a big emphasis for society so indian society is incredibly stratified there are lots of hierarchies but in addition to just the caste there are thousands, literally thousands of other classifications. And these are called jatis, which literally translates to birth. And so all of these interplay in who you are, what you have access to, how people react to you, all these types of things. Um, And the reason the forecast, although in classical Hinduism, whether or not they were utilized, they're definitely are utilized now. And the texts say that the first three, so priests, warriors, and merchants, have access to uh, the Vedas, men exclusively. Um, so that, which when we talk about texts, that will play a role. But that's kind of what the castes are. It's just these classifications of who you are, mainly based on what you, well, what your occupation was, occupation of the male, that being. It's also important to note that it is believed that caste is a, which you're going to talk about here in a second, but caste is a direct result of karma, dharma, and samsara. So um, karma being cause and effect, dharma being your duty, samsara being the cycle of life, or life cycles rather. So based on those three things, that dictates where you fall in the caste system. Yeah, and so then once you have sort of made it to the top of the rebirth heap and you have achieved or you've broken out of samsara, it's called moksha. Um, and that's one of the main goals or is the most important goal for Hindus in their life. Uh, but I thought it was interesting that, um, it's not the only goal. Um, so while that is very important and that is easily the most important goal, there are other goals. So, um, some of those include Kama, which is sensory, sexual, and aesthetic pleasures. So if you've heard of the Kama Sutra, that's where that comes from. Um, a Sutra is a type of text, which we'll get into that when we get to Buddhism because everything's connected in Asia. And, um, there's, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this one right, but it's Arta, this material wealth and worldly success. There's Dharma, like you were just saying, fulfillment of social and moral and religious duty, so your duty in life. And then you have moksha with all of those. And so there's believed that there's supposed to be this sort of balance between all four of those. And I'll say in terms of moksha, like many things in Hinduism, there are many paths to moksha. But two of the most, I wouldn't say important, but two of the most uh utilized, I guess, would be uh, one that's described in the Vedas and one that's de- described in the Bhagavad Gita. So the Vedas 
describes one that is specifically for men of the top three casts. Um, and it's called the ashrama, which means the four stages of life. So with, you follow these four stages, and then you will be able to achieve moksha. So the first one is a student who is chaste. So at a certain age, you would go meet with a guru and um, study the Vedas and begin chanting and meditation and all these things. And um, you do that for a significant period of time, probably anywhere from five to ten years. And then you would get married. And once you become married, you become a householder, you are trying to accumulate material wealth and really success. And it's also important for progeny. Like you really want to have children, especially sons. Then after you've lived a successful life with you and your wife, you would retire to the forest. You may or may not bring her with you. It doesn't really say what happens to her if you don't bring her with you. Um, <laughs> but you retire to the forest and you devote yourself to spiritual contemplation. And here you'd be living in a, in a cave or some type of dwelling which is important because the final step, once you've achieved, achieved, achieved that, sorry, is that you'd become a homeless, wandering ascetic. Um, in reality, this was taken, this fourth step was seen as more optional, and often many people did not do it. With that being said, this is very much true today, true in classical Hinduism, that some people just skip some steps and jump to others. So it's not uncommon for someone to like, you know, just move into becoming a homeless ascetic and you will see ascetics throughout India or like become the student who's chase and then, you know, retire to the forest and never get married. So men in particular, because that's who this is for, jump around. Um, but ideally you, you follow the four steps because there is this belief that's part of your dharma, your duty that you, you know, become learned in the text, you become a, um, productive member of society, and then after that, you go on into your meditation. So that's one uh, aspect or uh, way of, of achieving moksha. Another path is laid out in the Bhagavad Gita, and this um, talks about the three paths to salvation. So the karma marga, the path of ritual action or your path of duties, um, the disinterested discharge of ritual and social obligations, which is the jhana marga, path of knowledge. Okay, and then the third one being um, bhakti marga, path of devotion, so love for a personal god. But this is seen as, by, by doing this, is a, another path to achieving moksha. Yeah, and the idea that there is this pluralism in the way that you can achieve spiritual fulfillment in this world in Hinduism. It's something that just kept coming up in my research, and I kept seeing stuff about how a lot of people describe Hinduism as one of the more accepting religions of the world um, in terms of accepting of other faiths and other traditions, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, I think that's because, you know, it's so fluid in terms of what practices and how you incorporate things that I think it's very easy uh, to incorporate other things. So I know that um, when Christianity first came to India through the British and missionaries, there is a sense of people are like, yeah, I'm a Hindu Christian because like Jesus was just seen as another deity to put in the right. Pantheon. And so they're like, yeah, you know, well, you, you say I have to go to, these are things I have to do. I go to church. I, I, you know, practice Easter and Christmas. These are just more things that you put into what you're already doing. Um, mm -hmm. So I can, that totally makes sense to me. All right, so you want to talk a little bit about the textual sources that you've been 
alluding to or teasing us with yeah, this whole thing? Yeah, sure. Um, so there are the Vedas, which you mentioned, or I've mentioned as well. There are four Vedas. Um, they were orally transmitted for almost 3,000 years with very little error. Um, when the British came to India, they wanted Brahmins to, you know, transcribe the Vedas. And the Brahmins were like, no, we, this is not something that we do. It took a lot of convincing. And so I think it was like the 1780s, they finally were able to convince Brahmin to do it. And once like a couple of Brahmin did it, then other Brahmins would. And they were shocked to find that the text that was given to them in Kashmir, which is very, very north of the Indian subcontinent versus Tamil Nadu, which is like pretty south, like drastic, lots of space between those two, almost identical. So over 3,000 years of oral transmission. Um, but there are four main texts, the oldest one being the Rig Veda, which was likely composed between 1500 and 900 BCE. It has 1,028 hymns. That's the only one I really know anything about. Uh, there's the Yajur Veda, the Sama Veda, and the Artha Veda. Those are the, I don't want to say primary texts because, again, depending on who you are, what you think, some people totally dismiss the Vedas. Uh, but probably a lot of, you could say that a lot of traditions and ideas, uh, Hindu philosophy, come from the Vedas. I was going to say a lot of the research I was finding was describing them as sort of foundational. Yes. Not that everyone cares about them, but that they are at the basis of pretty much everything. Right. And they are exclusively, the Brahmins have access to them. And then if you were to follow the path that I just told you about, if you're part of the top three castes, then you get access to studying them. Not all of them, but you do get access, some access to them. So that means women and Shudras had no access to them at all. So... That is to say, a vast majority of people do not have access to the Vedas. Um, another text that's important is the Upanishads, which basically means to sit near a teacher. And it's kind of believed that these are teachings from wise gurus. And it's, it's said that they were taken from meetings in the forest. And so the devotees would go to their gurus in the forest. The gurus would say things to them, and then that's how this became composed. Um, and these basically provide commentary on the Vedas. Um, and they're really interesting because there's actually a story in the Upanishads where uh, a guru is asking his uh, student, you know, how many how many gods are there? And so the student says like three and, and is praised. And then another time and the guru asks again and he says 33 and he's praised. He says, ask him again and he says 3,000. This goes on and on and on. Each time the student is praised, which really kind of illustrates the fact that like there are infinite number of, of gods and no number is the correct number. But like ideally, as you can see in the story, every time he was praised. And that's actually kind of how a lot of the Upanishads go, where it's, there's a lot of repetition. Um, so it's like you'll have a line and it's exactly the same in the next line, but only one word has changed. And then the next one, that same portion, but you know the word has changed again. Um, so that's the Upanishads. And then, as I said, most uh, Hindus don't have access to the Vedas or the, um, really the Upanishads. Most of them also aren't really in daily use. If you go to your typical Brahmin, they're not really using them. But occasionally, 
uh, some hymns from the Vedas are used in temples. So when you think about, okay, we have these scripts, what are everyday average Hindus using? Well, they're using uh, the two epics, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, as well as the Puranas. So the Ramayana is a tale of Ram, who is a prince that is exiled um, into the forest for 14 years by his father because the, his stepmother is jealous. Um, but during his 14 years of exile, he, his wife Sita, and his brother uh, Lakshmana, are, they have these adventures. And eventually they get to go back and he takes the throne. And that's kind of the Ramayana. It's, it's actually really important in the sense they're, they're retellings of this all the time. There's like a whole festival of retellings of the Ramayana that happened in India. The second one is the Mahabharata. This is the world's longest poem. So a lot of times people think of the Iliad and the Odyssey as extremely long oral poems. The Mahabharata is 10 times the length of the Odyssey and the Iliad combined. So extremely long. And uh, there are a lot of like stories that encompass this um, poem. But basically, kind of the main story is there are the Pandavas and their cousins, the Karavas, and they're fighting for the kingdom. And uh, from this text, like 18 chapters are taken out of it. And this gives us the Bhagavad Gita. It's a much smaller section of this very large text. And in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Arjuna, who's one of the Pandavas, he doesn't want to go to war with his cousins. And so he has a crisis and uh, his charioteer, the person who holds his chariot, uh, (laughs) reveals himself to be Lord Krishna. And Lord Krishna kind of counsels him on the importance of fighting this war, why he needs to go through it. And uh, this is seen, this is probably the most well-known text from Hinduism but a lot of people don't know that it's a smaller portion of a larger text. So those are probably the texts that people engage with the most. Those were also, again, orally transmitted over time. And it's through the retellings of these stories, seeing them visually, that people gain access. The Mahabharata actually means like the great story of Bharat. Um, And so some people consider this to be like the history of Bharat. In, In India, actually, in, in uh, Hindi, Bharat is what they use for India. So like in Germany, it's Deutschland. In India, it's Bharat. So it's like considered the history of the, of the country. And also another thing to add about the Bhagavad Gita, which probably why people are more familiar with it is because of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, or most everyone knows them as Hare Krishnas, because um, they give out free copies of the Bhagavad Gita. Like that's how I have my copy. Um, and so, like, if you've seen Hare Krishna's, now you know that they're sort of tangentially connected to Hinduism. I mean, they are, they're pretty clearly connected to Hinduism. Uh, I guess it's not tangential. It's just, it is a movement in the United States, which we'll eventually have an art, uh, episode about. So, um, Okay, so that's that. And then there are the Puranas. And these are the narratives of Hindu deities. Um, and these are known as the scripture, scriptures of the common people exclusively because Unlike the Vedas, they, everyone had access to them, including women and the Shudras. So this is really where a lot of people go for, I guess, scriptural stuff would be the Puranas. Um, those are the main texts. And then, as everything with Hinduism, there are many other texts in vernacular languages. That's also – so not many people 
speak or read Sanskrit. So not only are they you know, exclusive to a certain class, most people, even if they got access to them, would, would know what to do because they don't understand the language. So it's the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, the Puranas. Those texts, while available to everyone, have also been translated into the vernacular languages or the local languages of people. And then there are other texts that, you know, this is exclusively in, in Tamil. This is in Gujarati. So people had access to those. So that's what the you know common people reach out to and have relationship with is these texts, not the Vedas. Yeah, so you want to move on to worship? Sure. Um, so like we've been saying there's a million and one ways to be Hindu and to think about being a Hindu. And there's a million and one gods to worship or uh, to, I guess, venerate as a Hindu. There are that many ways to worship and practice as a Hindu. So um, <clears throat> I, what I found when I was looking up things on Hinduism was that puja is probably the most central type of worship. Mm-hmm. in Hinduism. And so what puja is, is basically in its most simplest form, it's giving of offerings and recitations of mantras, which mantras are these, these verses um, that are repeated. And the most, I guess the most elaborate type of puja is in front of an icon at like a temple. So a regular puja you can do like at home. Um, but then if you go to a temple and you do it before an icon, this becomes a lot more involved. Um, So this is a direct quote from the World Religions and Spirituality Project page on Hinduism, which if you want to find out about Hinduism or Sikhism, um, go take a look at, in our show notes, we have the links to those. It's really, really crazily detailed, but it has lots of different sources and tells you everything about the history and all of that about these traditions. But anyway, Puja is an invitation. It includes things like an invitation to the deity, offering of a seat to the divinity, greeting it, washing the feet of it, rinsing its mouth and hands, offering water or a honey mixture, pouring water onto it, putting clothing onto it if it hasn't been clothed for the day, um, giving it different kinds of offerings like perfume, flowers, incenses, lamps, which are these little lights, which are, my understanding is pretty important offering of lights in Hinduism Mm -hmm. and food and then prostration. And then you do something before you leave. Um, So puja can be kind of involved, I guess. Yeah, it can be involved or it could not be involved too. Um, It just kind of depends. So like when I was in India, you like in our house that I lived in, there was a little altar and every day, um, the I lived in a dorm, but it was like a house. So our uh, our our chef and our maid basically would perform puja, and usually that meant just putting an offering, and then they'd offer something to the gods, and then they would partake in it themselves. Um, if you and then it's like so you go to the temple, and temples are everywhere, but there are also like altars because if there is a space that you know, is important to you, something important happened to you, you, it feels auspicious to you, like, which means it'll give you good fortune, whatever, you can make an altar there, or you can go to a temple. And so depending on what was happening, people would might go and pray, uh, say something, 
oftentimes there was some type of a figure there. Um, Darshan is a really important um, concept, and that is to be seen and see the gods. And so, like, you know, you, you want it, so you'll do things to get the attention of the gods. So that's why you might, you know, light incense or put ghee on coil or uh, coals so that you get the attention of the gods. Another thing is that with the lamps, is you might take a lamp and wave it in front of the figure of the, of the god, and then you would then wave. So like maybe a, a Brahmin is there and they'll wave it in front of the figure for you. And then you take your hands and you put them over the flames, not touching it, but just like enough so you can feel the heat. And then you immediately put that on your eyes. You like close your eyes and put it on your eyelids so that like, you know, you are experiencing darshan where like you have done something so that the god has seen you. Now you see the god by like taking that sacred flame and putting it on your eyes. Um, so there's like all kinds of things that you can do. But the yeah, puja is really important and it can take so many forms from uh, offering prasad like in Sikhism to uh, offering the clothing or just saying um, a prayer or a mantra or anything like that. Yeah. And so, I mean, the one thing, too, is that these icons are seen as actual embodiments of whatever divinity they're representing. Mm -hmm. So they're not seen as like as if it's an actual it's just a simple representation of them. It's seen as actually them. So like getting at what you were saying about being seen by the divinity um, so that, you know, you're actually doing things in front of this icon that you would do in front of a person to get their attention. Yeah, ways. like the, the god has manifested either that image or that statue. Right. Um, so you want to, you know, speak to it or whatever. I will say, though, one thing I want to point out, there's a difference between um, temples in India versus temples, I'll say in America, because that's where my most of my experience is. So in India, there are so many temples and altars everywhere. So it's not uncommon for there to be a temple that's devoted to one singular god or a room for one god. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, there may be like two or three, but definitely less than five. Like, it's rare for you to go to a temple and there are lots of gods there. That's because there's so many. So like if Shiva is important to me, I can go to a Shiva temple. I can probably go next door or not too far away. There is a temple for Vishnu. And then like, you know, in the area, there's a temple for Krishna. So like you can go and do very specific uh, things, Um, you know, go to gods for specific things. But in America, because there are less Hindu temples and the community kind of has to come together in a different way you will find that they are more, um, I don't want to say inclusive, but just like they're trying to address different needs. So oftentimes if you go to a temple in America, you will see like 5, 10, 15, 20 different gods at different spaces. There's one that I went to in Kansas, and there were like three rooms that you kind of went through. And in one room, you like start in the front and then you go around the back and there are more gods. And that's because, you know, not everyone worships every god, but you want to get as many in as possible so that if a person wants to go to the temple, then they can go to the temple and worship the god that's important to them. Side note being that it's also very common not to go to a temple. Like you could live your entire life as a Hindu and never go to a temple and only do all of your worship in the home, which is, I think, a big contrast to other faiths where it's important to have that community and go to the religious space that religious space could definitely be in your home just among family so you don't have to go to the temple but they definitely serve different functions where it's more 
specific in India and definitely trying to appeal to more people uh, in America. So there's more gods available. Yeah. And to that point that almost any place can be a place of worship. um, One thing that I wanted to talk about today, because I like talking about sacred sites in the landscape, because it kind of relates back to what I do in Lakota communities, is I want to talk about the River Ganges a little bit. Um, So this is a river that's in India, and we will provide copious maps in the show notes for you map-loving people. Um, And the River Ganges is super, super, super important. Um, I don't know, is it, would you say it's probably one of the most important physical locations in Hinduism? Yes, definitely. Um, So it's believed to be the embodiment of the goddess Ganga. um, And it is used for lots of different stuff. Um, So it's viewed as this embodiment of a goddess first. Um, It's also believed to help facilitate moksha. Um, by bathing in the river, you're able to wash away some bad deeds. I wasn't, I had a little trouble getting at like the actual specifics of that, um, because of the whole idea of karma. Like I didn't know you could just wash the bad stuff away. Um, yeah, yeah, you can, I, I think that's, I mean, you have it here as sins. I think that that's a good way of putting it. It's just okay. like, it's, I think it's a workaround around karma. I mean, okay. well, in the sense that like karma is going to impact future lives, but I guess the karma that impacts this current life can kind of wash away those things. Um, And so I also thought it was really interesting. There's a lot of different stories about the origin of the river itself. Um, And one of which I found a really good video for that we'll put in the show notes from the National Geographic show Story of God with Morgan Freeman, which is awesome if you haven't watched it. Um, And in this story, it explains that the river Ganga or the goddess Ganga was released from the heavens to come down to earth. And essentially she would have flooded out the entirety of the world. And instead of that happening, the God Shiva catches her in his hair and She flows down his hair and then is released as these small streams that then feed the Ganges. Um, And this is, it's kind of interesting too, because it talks about how there is this reflection between the river, uh, the, the Ganges on earth and the Milky Way in the sky. And like the Milky Way is seen as sort of reflections of the river in the heavens. So that was really cool because there's a lot of, um, astronomical reflections in Lakota stuff too, um, that I'm familiar with. So I was like, Oh, that's super cool. Which I think we should do an episode on religious astronomy at some point. Okay. Let's do it. Because that seems cool. Um, there's also a lot of sort of ritual practice that takes place in association with the river. So there's this one particular pilgrimage that takes place every 12 years. And before I get too much into detail about it, pilgrimages to the river to cleanse yourself are like a daily occurrence. So you you can almost always see someone bathing themselves in the river at all times of day, all times of night. There are always people, um, by the river or bathing in the river in the water. Like pujas happen on the river. There's lots of things that are happening. It's always a festive, festive place. And so this one particular pilgrimage that I'm not even going to try and pronounce, but we will put it in the show notes. Kumela. Perfect. Thank you. Um, 
takes place every 12 years, and it is considered the largest peaceful religious gathering in the world by UNESCO. I'm curious about the like peaceful part of this description, but fine. Um, but it's estimated that approximately 50 million people show up for this, which mm. um, I have a video about it that we'll also put in the show notes. I got lots of videos and lots of cool stuff for the show notes this episode. And um, it compares this to um, a couple of things. I think it compares it to the Hajj pilgrimage in Islam, and I can't remember the number on that, but it compared it to um, also the New Year's Eve party at Times Square, which mm. attracts roughly a million people. So we're talking oh, wow. 50 times yeah. that many people are going to this one place on the river. And then the I think that something that I have run into or have been exposed to the most with Hinduism is the sort of funerary practices Mm -hmm. Um, because they use cremation so exclusively. And like you talk about that in like almost every intro to cultural anthro class. Um, And so cremations, when someone, when someone dies, um, they will be cremated. Is this, is this something that always happens? Like when anybody dies? Yeah, it's pretty rare not to be cremated. I think there's some exceptions for like children, uh, mm-hmm. but I would say a vast majority of people are cremated um, who are Hindu. And what, are they all cremated along the river? No. Okay. So like that's the ideal. If you can right. get to um, the Ganges, like that's the ideal. But obviously that doesn't happen for everyone. So some people, like, particularly in America, you'll get cremated and then it's like, your family is supposed to take you to the river. That also doesn't okay. happen also, you know, um, that's the goal. And it's seen as like a blessing for that to happen to you. Right. And it helps with like moksha and, you know, future karma, assuming mm-hmm. you don't achieve moksha, but like, so it, it's just a benefit to you. It's like, if it doesn't happen, there's no negative consequences. There's only positive, you know, benefits for it, for it happening. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so then when someone's cremated, their ashes are then released into the river. Um, and I, one of the stuff that I was reading was talking about all the environmental concerns with all of this. Cause I guess the Ganges is pretty, pretty polluted. Yeah. It's not the, the cleanest place. I also think that, so my understanding is that typically once you die, you're usually cremated ideally within 24 hours. Right. So I think that that makes it difficult if you are, say if you're, because the Ganges, particularly where a lot of the um, pujas and stuff are happening, is very North India. So if you're in South India, like unless you're rich, you're right. likely not going to make it to North India in time. So speaking of funerals, kind of moving into some life cycle rituals. So uh, before I really talk about life cycle rituals, I think it's important to the idea of auspiciousness versus inauspiciousness. So again, auspiciousness auspiciousness being good fortune and inauspiciousness being like bad or not bringing fortune. And this is really central to the practice of um, Hindus. A little bit, we've talked about some of the practices already, but like, People's lives are based around auspicious times and things. And the best illustration of that are life cycle rituals. So the most auspicious thing a person can do is get married. And everything that's related to that is done at auspicious times. So like you get engaged and then like 
the day that we're thinking about buying clothes, that has to be done on an auspicious day. Um, the wedding itself has to be done on an auspicious day. All preparations are done on auspicious because days. Because planning and a wedding the, isn't stressful enough. <laughs> <laughs> and so in order to like, there are like calendars with an auspicious time, like there are auspicious times of the day. There are auspicious, some days of the week are more auspicious than others. There are days of the week that are considered to be inauspicious. So like in Southern India, people never get married on Saturdays or Tuesdays because those are considered inauspicious. But there well, are thanks specific for that, Jay. That would have been uh, useful to know like a year ago. <laughs> Well, you're not Hindu, so and you're not from South India, so you're fine. Okay, all right. Um, but there are uh, astrologers who use both like lots of math and stuff from the Vedas to calculate all this stuff. And you can buy calendars with certain um, auspicious things, but usually you would just go to an astro- astrologer and then they would tell you, oh, this is auspicious, this is not auspicious, and that's how you kind of – Figure those things out. I'm definitely out. buying um, a calendar. My 2020 calendar is going to be a Hindu auspicious and an auspicious day calendar. Okay. And there, there are like so many auspicious and inauspicious days. Specifically, the from mid-September to mid-October, like that whole time is considered inauspicious. So that's the one time of the year that weddings do not happen because there's there's no auspicious days during that Interesting. time. Interesting. Why is that? Uh, I do not know. I just know that that's what it Fair is. Enough. I'd have to ask an, astro- an astrologer. <laughs> um, so, okay. So the wedding, it's often several days long, anywhere from three to five days long. And the, and okay, I say that there's three to five days long, but the like, the part where you are actually considered to be married people happens on one day. Oh, okay. So all these other days are like, you're not consistently like having marriage ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Other things are happening. Um, different rituals, parties, things like that. But like the actual marriage ceremony will be on one day. And this takes place in front of a fire. So often a Brahmin will come say some, not wedding hymns, but like some verses from the Vedas about weddings. Um, Depending on who you are, of course this changes, but one popular thing that happens at Indian weddings or Hindu weddings rather is that the couple exchanges garlands and then they'll take seven steps together around the fire. And once those seven steps have been taken, they're officially considered married. Um, the Brahmin, the verses that they were reciting from the Vedas, some of these verses have been recited for 3,000 years. So definitely wow. a um, continuation going on here. So that's kind of the wedding. Again, there's like so much more one could say about weddings, but those are just kind of the basics that are popular but not necessarily meant doesn't mean that everyone is doing those um death rituals we've talked about this a little bit already but death is considered to make you impure so if a relative who's close to you dies like death is a inauspicious thing whereas birth would be auspicious um but it makes you impure so if a relative dies or if you attend a funeral then likely you need to ritually cleanse yourself afterwards, which could be as simple as taking a bath or pouring water over your head. Um, But when you die, you will be cremated, usually within a day of passing, as we said before. Uh, Before you're cremated, your body will be washed, typically by women. Sacred marks will be put on your forehead. And then a priest will begin rituals in your home. So it's very common, again, for things to happen in the home. They don't need to happen in the temple. Uh, and as you, as kind of guess your funeral thing is happening, uh, people will bow. And so usually you're like, you're laying on the floor or something. So people will, 
bow in front of you and oftentimes they'll place garlands on you and you will be facing the south or your body's to the south. Either way, they're going to face the south because the, the south is considered the direction of death. It's very typical for the sun to perform the funeral rites in rare exceptions where there are no sons um, or say say a, a, someone dies, they only had a daughter. The daughter's son may do it, but it, you know she doesn't have a daughter, doesn't have a son. In rare exceptions, or I guess in some exceptions, the daughter will do it. And this is actually written in the Veda, where it talks about how women can perform these rites. So that kind of leads to the importance of performing these rites. So much so that if a son is not or a male heir isn't available, then a daughter can be substituted. Hmm. Um, and then this kind of goes into what we've been talking about before, in the sense that. It believes that your soul will leave the body, take on a new body, and continue in another life until it's liberated. So those are some of the main life cycle rituals. Of course, there are so many more, but it's so dependent on who you are, where you're from, all these things. So those are just kind of some of the main ones. And then there are festivals. Um, So one of the big ones is the New Year. Interesting thing about this is that, so depending on where you are, it's depending on where you celebrate the new year. So like, it's pretty typical in Northern India, as well as places like um, Thailand, Singapore, Vietnam, Cambodia, they all celebrate, although those aren't all countries with Hindus in them, they all celebrate the new year in the spring, typically between April 13th and 15th. But in the South, they celebrate the new year in the fall. I do not know why. I just know that okay. is, the case. is it. Do they? Well, is it a lunar calendar? It is a lunar calendar, but it is adjusted to the solar calendar. Okay. So much like how Easter falls around the same time, or like Easter or Yom Kippur fall around the same time every year, that's how it works. Even do they work calendar. in an extra month, like the Jewish calendar, or? I do not know. Okay, that Deepavali or Diwali. Uh, this is known as the Festival of Lights. So I just put in my notes that it's a celebration of a winning of a battle because depending on where you are is depending on who the battle is for. Mm-hmm. So there is a battle that Rama had. Some people, that's the celebration of that. There's a celebration of um, of like a battle for Krishna. There's one for Durga. So again, depending on where you are, it has different meanings, but in general, it seems to be that this is a celebration of a winning of a major battle. Um, there's uh, Navarati, which is the victory. This is also not a battle, but it's, it's either oftentimes it's the victory of uh, Durga or Rama's conquest of Lanka. Again, depending on where you are, it's usually associated with one of those two events. And then there's Holi, which is probably one of the most popular holidays, um, especially, I would say, in the diaspora, because you throw paint at each other. This has also kind of been co-opted. The They're color like run. The color yes. run. <laughs> yes. So that's... Um, yeah, cultural appropriation. Appropriation of this. <laughs> but when I... I happen to be in... This hap- takes place in the spring, and it is supposed to be for worshipers of Krishna, but like it's kind of a national holiday in India, at least in the north. Um, so and it's supposed to imitate his uh, Krishna's play. Krishna is known as like the playful god in general, but his play with gopis who are daughters and wives of cow herders. And so in it, you throw uh, paint at each other. Usually it's like 
paint powder, but some people have water guns. Oh, that's awesome. That they'll shoot you with paint. Um, that's great. And so and to make it even funnier, you wear like specifically white on this nice. day. Nice. That's exactly so you, like the color the run. Of, they just totally ripped that so off. You, <laughs> so you go out and you buy white stuff and then you will – and it's like so – I remember we were going to um, the, uh, Delhi University, I think. They were having like a big holy celebration and so you, you take a rickshaw to get there. It's yes. like, ki- like kids are like running next to the rickshaw, like throwing paint at you and shooting you with water guns. And when you hit a stoplight, like they were all over you, like, you know, getting you wet and like throwing paint on you and they like smear it on your face and stuff like that. I think it's hilarious. So even before you got to the park, you were already like color, like doused in colors. Um, but that's what you do is you throw color on people. And then I think afterwards people, use, you know, go and have a meal. Those are just a handful of festivals. Again, there are probably many more festivals that are dependent on what part of India you live, what your village is, things like that. I do want to say also um, that a lot of this ranges. So like outside of festivals, like there's a lot of fasting that happens. And I didn't really go extensively into that or I'm not going to go extensively into that because it is so dependent on your family norms, your village, where you are. And that's really all I have about festivals and life cycle rituals. Nice. And we have a we have an episode in the queue on religion on religious fasting. So we will we will come back and revisit this. So the very last thing that I want to talk about is probably the thing that most people are most familiar with in terms of Hinduism and that's yoga. Um, so yoga is like I said before it's particular to South Asia. It is sort of particular to Hinduism, depending on who you ask. Um, but what it means is it's a, it's a union or it can also mean like a method or technique. What I was trying, when I was trying to find like what it actually means, I had a lot of trouble finding a direct translation, um, which puzzled me considering it's been commercialized so much in the United States, but whatever. Um, but basically what yoga is, is contemplative training. And it's one of those practices that you can use to help you get closer to moksha, to help you understand what Brahman actually is. And the yoga that people are probably most familiar with is called Hatha Yoga, which is actually not even one of the four main types of yoga. It's actually a subtype of one of the four types of yoga. Um, So the four main types are Bhakti Yoga, which that's the yoga of devotion, uh, karma yoga, which is the yoga of service, jhana yoga, which is the yoga of knowledge, and raja yoga, which is sort of the yoga of like cultivation of your mind. Um, and so all of these things, like bhakti yoga, you do things like you sing, you dance, um, you listen to praises of the divine. Karma yoga is about sort of selfless service and like the the point of it is to acknowledge the divinity in everyone um, by doing these sort of service activities. Uh, Jhana yoga is meditation on the scriptural teachings and then Raja yoga like I was saying before is sort of focused on cultivation of the mind before meditation. So it's like based around this idea that you can't just sit down and meditate that you actually have to get your mind in a particular way before you actually can meditate. Um, and none of those are the yogas that people in the United States and in Europe too 
do when you go down to the gym in your Lululemon yoga pants. And so, (laughs) um, and I think that's really important, um, to remember because in the United States, I think we think of, we call it yoga as if it is the one, the only yoga. Um, and it's, and it's not, um, the use of those postures or asanas, I think is what they're called. Um, look at me remembering Mm -hmm. things. Um, those are not, that is not the end all be all of yoga. Um, and using it as a sort of physical fitness technique is, I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's super totally problematic as I would say, like wearing a headdress to Coachella is. Um, but like I was watching another video, I watched a lot of videos for this episode. Um, and I'll put it in the show notes. It talks about yoga in America. And there's this one particular Indian artist. He did a he did a, um, an art showing at a gallery, um, and he did this project where he looked at representations of yoga in the United States, and he looked from the earliest time when yoga was talked about in the 1820s with Swami Vivekananda and the World Congress of Religions in Chicago all the way up through current stuff. Like, there's this yoga magazine, and he looked at it, and he looked at every single issue of this yoga magazine, and it was something like less than 5% of the people on the covers were actually from South Asia and an even Mm. smaller percentage of the people who actually contribute to the magazine were from South Asia. Um, yeah. So I was like, that's just weird because when I think about personally, when I want to go learn about something from another culture or a group that I'm not a part of, I want to go to them, but maybe that's just because of my anthropological training. Um, I don't want to learn about yoga from some, weird white lady in Lululemon yoga pants. <laughs> We're just going to offend everyone yeah. that wears Lululemon. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I just, I think that's something to think about when you think about doing yoga um, because I've done yoga before. I know you've done yoga before. Um, you know, I, yep. I don't necessarily have a personal vendetta against people who do yoga, but I do think that having, taking the time to actually recognize the traditions and cultures and places in the world and the people from which yoga comes from is important. Yeah, that's fair. I do want to say one thing that's not related to mm-hmm. yoga, but we kept teasing about bhakti. Yeah. And um, so, as you said, yoga of devotion, um, the singing, dancing, and praisings of the divine. So a devotional, uh, like bhakti poetry, basically, that's what it is. It's devotional poetry, specifically poetry towards the divine. Um that is involves a lot of like lyrical in- intimacy and it's kind of believed or one theory is that uh, after the Mughals invaded and kind of took over India, there's a little bit of a crisis among some Hindus in the sense that, you know, we are being ruled by someone else. Is this the end of Hinduism? Is this the end of the world? All these things. And so there was a push to move away. And I, I think there are like a lot of reasons for this, but there was a push to move away from, orthodox hinduism at the time and look for a different path and so one of those risings was uh bhakti devotional hinduism and really looking towards love of the divine and expressing that love as a different path to uh i don't want to say salvation but but moksha and kind of reorienting and getting sense of the world of around them and what's happening in terms of the loss of Hindu success militarily and in terms of who was ruling. All right. 
Are we done? I think so. That's all I have. I don't have any other random things to say. All right. Well, on that note, thank you all for listening. We'd like to give a special, special gratitude or special thanks to all of our listeners. We broke 100 listens this week. Um, So that is super awesome. Um, Thank you all for trusting us to tell you things about religion (laughs) that you don't know about. Um, (laughs) However misguided that may be. Um, um, So, yeah, thank you for listening. Please go and leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. That helps us, um, helps new people find us. Um, Even if you think we're horrible, go leave us some reviews. Um, Sure. But other than that, um, if you like what we're doing here, tell your friends. And you can find us on Twitter at Religious Lit Pod and Facebook at facebook.com slash religiously literate. Please email us or send comments on our Facebook page like Molly did. If you have questions about anything or you have episode ideas or you're like, oh, my gosh, skip all of those episodes and do that episode on religious fasting, whatever it is you want to do. You can email us at religiouslitpodcast at gmail.com. And other than that, I guess we'll see you next time. Bye.